From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm the host of today's special edition episode, Nurse Practitioner Patty Scalzo, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's monthly podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. As always, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. Nurse practitioners play an important role in informing their patients about the availability and benefits of clinical trial participation. NPs can leverage this role by advocating for their patients who are considering clinical trial participation and by staying informed about what clinical trial opportunities are available in their community. On today's podcast, we're joined by nurse practitioners Leslie Davis and Paula Tucker, who will share details of the research process, identify helpful resources, and discuss real-life examples with you so that you're prepared to take on the role of clinical trial participation champion. Dr. Davis earned her MSN, Postmaster's NP certificate, and PhD in nursing from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She's an associate professor at UNC Chapel Hill and maintains a part-time NP practice with the Division of Cardiology at the UNC Chapel Hill School of Medicine. Dr. Davis is a nurse scientist and her research addresses self-care and symptom management in adults with cardiovascular conditions. Dr. Tucker is a clinical associate professor at Emory University Nell Hodgson Woodruff School of Nursing, where she is the co-director of the Emergency Nurse Practitioner Specialty Program. In addition to her teaching responsibilities, Dr. Tucker currently practices as an emergency nurse practitioner in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Tucker's scholarly interests and research involve traumatic brain injury and healthcare quality improvement and implementation science. It is my pleasure to welcome our experts, Dr. Leslie Davis and Dr. Paula Tucker. Thanks, Patty, for the kind remarks. Again, this is Leslie Davis, and I'm happy to be here today and would like to thank AANP for hosting this podcast on a very important topic. The first thing I'd like to review with today's participants is what are clinical trials and what do they typically entail? Clinical trials that we'll discuss today will refer to trials that include human subjects. We're not going to talk about animal studies. Most are aimed at evaluating a drug, typically medical trials, or a device or procedure, surgical trials, or in some cases, behavioral interventions like an educational program. Granted, there are other research studies that are descriptive in nature, such as maybe there's a registry for people who have experienced, say, long COVID symptoms, for example, or there's other registries for a particular disease state. Most clinical trials that we're gonna talk about would test drugs or devices. Now, when we talk about clinical trials that test drugs or devices, they typically answer two questions. The first question would be, 
Is this safe? Do the benefits outweigh potential side effects? And early studies have to determine that it's safe to continue doing other studies. The second question, is it efficacious? Does the new treatment work as good or better than the standard of care? So trials that test a behavioral intervention typically determine, and some of these may be from nurse practitioners that have done quality improvement or um, studies to see if a new way to deliver care or a new educational intervention, such as maybe a new way to take home blood pressures, or is nurse practitioner delivered care versus otherwise, is that better? So some, some studies ask, is it better? Is it safer? Is it less expensive? So there's a wide range of studies that can be done. Now, if it is a drug or device trial, for example, there are phases of studies, and this hopefully is a review, but like a phase one study would usually include small numbers of healthy subjects, maybe 10, 20, up to about 75 or 80. And that again is the goal to test safety before it goes on to larger numbers. Phase two had more participants, maybe 100 to 300 or 400, typically with the condition under study. They're not necessarily healthy subjects. And the goal is to see, is the new treatment as effective or better than the standard treatment? Or if it's the first time a drug class, for example, is being tested, is it not only safe, but when you get to phase two, is it effective? Phase three are just the general studies that most people think of. Many more subjects, hundreds, sometimes thousands, usually for a longer follow-up period to obtain more data on safety and efficacy. And this, in most cases, would, would inform FDA approval or not. It's basically gathering the data so that the FDA can decide whether there's enough safety and efficacy data to move forward for approval. Now, there are such things as phase four studies where it's post-marketing, where a, um, a device or a drug has been approved, FDA approved, but sometimes the FDA says um, we need more phase four or post-marketing monitoring to make sure it's safe in the long run when it gets to the real world. After this review of what clinical trials can entail and the phases, I'd like to pass it to my colleague, Paula, to talk more about what are the patient's rights when participating in clinical trials. This is very important for nurse practitioners to consider. Thank you so much, Leslie. One of the most important goals of the researcher who conducts clinical trials is to protect the safety of the clinical trial participants. Each trial has scientific oversight and patients also have rights that help protect them. Scientific oversight informs decisions about a trial while it's underway. So for example, some trials are stopped early if benefits from a strategy or treatment are obvious. That way, wider access to the new strategy can occur sooner. Sponsors also may stop a trial or part of a trial early if the strategy or treatment is having harmful effects. I would like to briefly discuss a few scientific oversight agencies that I think are important to know. Institutional Review Boards, or IRB, help provide scientific oversight for clinical trials, and all U.S. clinical trials are required to have an IRB. Now, an IRB is an independent committee created by the institution that sponsors clinical trials. The IRB's purpose is to ultimately ensure that clinical trials are ethical and that the participants' rights are protected. The IRB reviews the trial's protocol before the study begins 
ANIRB will only approve research that details uh, or deals with medically important questions in a scientific and responsible way. The IRB also checks on results throughout the trial. The Office of Human Research Protections, the United States Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, Office for Human Research Protections, OHRP, oversees all research done or supported by HHS. The OHRP also helps protect the rights, welfare, and well-being of research participants. They provide guidance and oversight to IRBs, develop educational programs and materials, and even offer advice on research-related issues. The Data Safety Monitoring Board, or the DSMB, role is to review data from a National Institutes of Health, or NIH, Phase three clinical trial for safety problems or differences in results among different groups. Now, every National Institutes of Health phase three clinical trial is required to have a data and safety monitoring board. And this board consists of a group of research and study topic experts. And then we've all heard of the Food and Drug Administration. In the United States, the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, provides oversight for clinical trials that are testing new medicines or medical devices. The FDA reviews applic applications for new medicines and devices before any testing on humans is done. They check to make sure that the proposed studies have proper informed consent and protection of human subjects. The FDA, FDA also provides oversight and guidance at various stages throughout the study. So, for example, before large-scale phase three trials begin, the FDA provides input on how these studies should be done. Now, I would like to discuss the rights of a patient within a clinical trial and the several protective steps that researchers must follow when conducting clinical trials. Each trial must have a unique action plan called a protocol. The clinical trial protocol is a study plan that contains complete details about the trial, including the background and the rationale for the trial, study objectives, trial design, its methods, and statistical considerations. The protocol describes what type of people may participate in the trial and details the schedule of tests, procedures, medications, and even dosages. Its purpose is to ultimately ensure that the study is justified, safe for participants, and designed to allow the research questions to be answered appropriately. Now, because of the careful design of treatment protocols, clinical trials are the safest and quickest way to confirm whether new treatments are truly beneficial for patients. Now, part of the clinical trial protocol is the informed consent. Informed consent is a process required by the FDA that ensures patients are given complete information about a clinical trial prior to their participation. So in order to join any clinical trial, each participant must read and sign an informed consent form before any treatment or testing related to the clinical trial has begun. This ensures that every participant understands his or her role and the rights in the trial. Now, key facts of the study are also included in a written informed consent form for participants to read and discuss with their families and healthcare provider. The information must be in a language that is understandable to the research subject. This happens before a participant agrees or takes part and throughout the course of the clinical trial. If the participant agrees to take part in the trial, they will be asked to sign the form. 
The patient then has the right and should ask questions about the trial to make sure they understand what's involved. Ultimately, taking part in a clinical trial is the patient's decision, and talking with their healthcare provider about all treatment options can facilitate the best choice for the patient. I want to highlight that an informed consent document is not a contract. Patients have the right to withdraw from a study at any time for any reason. Also, during the trial, patients have the right to learn about new risks or findings that emerge. If researchers learn that a treatment may harm the patient, the patient will be removed from the study. I have to speak about historical astrocytes and incidents that have endangered mistrust in clinical research and medical institutions. Investigators conducting the United States Public Health Service syphilis study at Tuskegee between 1932 and 1972 did not explain the study's risk and obtain formal agreements, which is called the informed consent, from the African-American men who were its participants. The researchers wanted to study the effects of untreated syphilis and withheld penicillin treatment when it became available in 1945 that would have helped the 399 study participants with the disease. Only when news leaked of the study in 1972 did their unethical and discriminatory behavior come to light. Their actions caused preventable illness and death in study participants, including their families. The failings of the syphilis study at Tuskegee contributed to the creation of the Belmont Report in 1976, which addresses ethical issues and research within human participants. It also outlines basic ethical principles and essential guidelines to protect human research participants and ensure safety in clinical trial research. Following publication of the scandalous Tuskegee syphilis study in 1978, the National Commission for the Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research released the Belmont Report. The Belmont Report specified three ethical principles for the protection of human subjects. Respect, which is recognize the autonomy of humans and require clear informed consent. Beneficence, research must be beneficial and reflect the Hippocratic ideal and then justice, the benefits this to society must be balanced against the risk to participants. So today, institutional review boards are responsible for reviewing all studies involving humans for compliance within these guidelines and reports of any study protocol violations. Now that I've discussed patients' rights, I will turn it back over to my colleague, Leslie, to discuss barriers to participation in clinical trials. Thank you, Paula. Um, when I think about barriers to clinical trial participation, I try to group those barriers into three conceptual buckets, and I'll discuss those. The barriers can be from the patient perspective, from the provider perspective, in this case, nurse practitioners and other clinicians, and from the site or trial design perspective. If we first think about the patient perspective, because we try and stay patient-centric, as discussed, you know, there's a lack of trust in the healthcare system and or research in general by many patients and their families. And therefore, the awareness, the attitude and willingness to participate matters. We know there's a history of that research or unethical behavior in research. Um, even as my colleague Paula talk about, though, just to think about it was not that long ago in the 70s when these unethical behaviors were done. So that is sometimes top of mind in patients when they consider whether or not to participate in research, that mistrust 
or fear of data use beyond the study may be of concern. Sometimes medical studies, especially those that involve medications, drugs, they collect genetic data or surgical procedures. They would collect um, genetics. And sometimes those consent forms say that we may use this in in the future without necessarily saying what they would use. And there's a whole clause in a consent form that can say that. Luckily, most of those consents say that part's optional. Another barrier for patients is accessibility to the clinical trial site. For example, if a study involves in-person visits or if it requires remote participation, does the patient and or their family have accessibility to get there, transportation, or to have the equipment if it's virtual participation. Or we also can think about accessibility for those with disabilities, whether someone has a visual or audio disability, is there are there accommodations made for that? Maybe there's not internet as part of that. So does the patient or the potential participant who is eligible, do they have access? There's also health literacy considerations. It's not enough to be able to read and understand the language on the consent form, but also the ability to comprehend health-related information. That's what health literacy really speaks to, beyond the ability to understand the language that's being spoken, do they understand the health-related information? Also, are there supportive services available? Is there transportation and parking available? The cost of parking sometimes is prohibitive as a barrier. So many research studies will give patients vouchers for that. Is there financial assistance if work is missed? Or is there child or dependent care if the potential participant cares for either children, spouses, older adults, anyone in the family? Also, for those with limited English language proficiency, there should be translation from a medical interpreter to explain things and also explaining things in a culturally appropriate manner. Without that, that is definitely a barrier to participation. As I think about barriers for nurse practitioners and other clinicians for offering clinical trial participation to their patient population, oftentimes a barrier is that the clinician or the nurse practitioner may not be aware of the clinical trial opportunities. For example, not all clinicians are affiliated with large academic medical centers or research institutions that typically undergo a vast number of ongoing clinical trials. Or maybe the nurse practitioner is part of a large academic medical center, but there's not great communication of what's available for their patients. Regardless, many NPs are unaware of the current research efforts in their own practice or in their community. As we think about another barrier for nurse practitioners, there may be concerns about interfering with the established patient-provider relationship. After all, it can be a slippery slope if it's your own study. Also, it can be a slippery slope that if you're in there talking to a patient after you've done your clinical visit about a research protocol, there may be sort of implicit pressure to the patient and they may feel like they need to participate in the study. Even though every single consent form and the informed consent process should verbally indicate that the patient does not need to participate in that study to receive care. For example, um, IRBs lately have been asking that someone other than the attending provider explain the study to the potential participant. So there won't be any 
pressure. Also, another barrier for nurse practitioners when they're thinking about um, clinical trial participation of their patients, they may have limited training or mentorship or resources of how to increase engagement in clinical trials. And we'll talk about that later in our podcast. That third conceptual bucket of barriers could be with the site selection and trial design itself. For example, industry sponsors may use the same large clinical sites or same investigators that they've always used. This could result in the exclusion of underserved populations or not offering participation to those that are traditionally underrepresented minority populations. Sometimes very diverse communities are not the traditional communities that many industry sponsors basically go to. Also, the clinical sites or trial design may set things up that are very inconvenient for patients to participate, as I've spoken about barriers. U.S. government-sponsored research is often done at major medical centers. Generally, they focus on the patients in those major referral centers, and therefore there may be limited engagement with community-based clinicians. Also, geographic location of trial sites. Again, it's up to the site, um, not really the site sponsor, but more the primary investigator that then has a sponsor, that they choose locations. And so patients that live very long distances from these areas gets back into the patient barriers, but they can be dictated by the site and the sponsors. So as I talk about these barriers, this brings up the issue related to health equity. How can we offer enrollment to diverse populations? Paula, maybe you can speak more about health equity as it relates to clinical trials. Absolutely, thank you, Leslie. Historically, clinical trials did not always recruit participants who represented the individuals most affected by a particular disease, condition, or behavior. And often these clinical trials relied almost exclusively on white male study participants. This shortcoming has created gaps in our understanding of diseases and conditions, uh, preventive factors, and treatment effectiveness across populations. These gaps in knowledge can also impede the quality of healthcare decision-making, ability to counsel people on ways to reduce their risk, optimal treatment responses, and even the development of more effective medications or interventions. Clinicians and researchers should carefully consider the inclusion or exclusion criteria for their clinical trials. For example, a clinical trial excluding participants with high blood pressure or other comorbidities may end up excluding many people over 65 years and older who are more likely to have these conditions. The trial may then underrepresent certain groups in the study and make the results less applicable to groups who may actually benefit most from the findings. There are other things to keep in mind is that people may experience the same disease differently. And so it's essential that clinical trials include people with a variety of lived experiences and conditions, as well as characteristics such as race and ethnicity, age, sex, and sexual orientation so that all communities benefit from scientific advances. In 1993, the NIH Revitalization Act of 1993 was signed into law to establish guidelines for the inclusion of women and persons from racial and ethnic minority populations within clinical research. The goal of this law and other guidelines is to ensure that research findings are generalizable to the entire population. 
A recent analysis of 35 cardiometabolic drugs that were approved by the FDA between January 2008 and December 2017 found that among over 290,000 participants enrolled in 143 clinical trials that were sponsored by industry, women represented only 36% of the participant population. Yet, women account for almost 51% of the population within the United States. I also want to talk about sexual and gender minority populations. Until recently, healthcare systems and epidemiological surveys often didn't ask the sexual orientation and gender identity questions to consider inclusion of sexual and gender minority persons. We know them as SGM. And this has made it very difficult to include individuals within SGM populations, within clinical trials or interventional studies in significant numbers to make results representative for them. So this lack of knowledge can influence clinician communication and can result in fewer health screening or treatment opportunities. This has also contributed to disproportionately higher rates of anxiety, depression, and selected cancers in SGM population, and exemplifies the need to include their experiences in clinical trials and research. Socioeconomic status, or SES, and related stressors is important. An individual's SES is a major predictor of health outcomes and can affect access to healthcare, nutritious foods, or prescription medications. In an analysis of all randomized clinical trials that were published in 2015 and 2019 in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the Lancet, and New England Journal of Medicine, study investigators reported that less than 15% of studies reported on the SES of trial participants. So it is important to have a wide range of people from different communities participate in clinical trials to reduce bias, promote social justice and health equity, and also produce more innovative science. Health justice requires that all participants in clinical trials benefit equally, and one approach is to strengthen ethical guidelines. So this means placing the responsibilities on the academic institution, urging them to stress the importance of equitable principles within research. Therefore, existing ethical standards must be followed and enforced to achieve health equity. Now I will turn it back over to Leslie to discuss identifying research opportunities for your patients. It is important for nurse practitioners and other clinicians to find out what research opportunities are available in their community. So how do you find out what's available in your community? I would suggest if you're in an academic setting, find out what trials are available for your particular population. For example, I work in a more of a specialty center in a cardiology specialty practice. So I might go to find out in our faculty meeting, for example, who all is doing clinical trials in this space? For example, I work now with hypertension and I would find out who's doing those clinical trials. In the past, when I worked with chronic heart failure, I could pretty much find out from all those in the clinic what they were doing at our facility. I also could find out through networking, maybe at clinical conferences of those in my community, what they were doing in their trials. If you're in a community or private practice and maybe not affiliated with an academic center, just find out what trials are available in your area relevant to your patient population. Again, some places to do that are when you're at a CE conference 
or you're maybe consulting with a provider. So I try and network and find out what's available. Sometimes my patients will ask what's available and it will start a discussion with other facilities. So for example, if I've seen a patient with a very rare condition when I was in working more with chronic heart failure, for example, something like amyloidosis. We know we only saw a patient back then um, every once in a while. And so we knew which go-to centers, which were often very far away, states away. And we said, what did they have available? And we could offer it to the patient if they were interested. And we knew it was a very legitimate place. The other thing you can do, and I did this prior to the podcast, so you can go in to the internet, clinicaltrials.gov, and you can search for ongoing clinical trials that relate to your patient population. For example, prior to this podcast, I'm very interested in women and heart disease. And so I put in there women, heart disease, and saw what came up. And there was just a handful of clinical trials, say there were three or four of them, and a couple of them had already finished recruitment, but the others were available. And some were available that you could do virtually, and some you needed to be close to a trial center, and it listed the locations. If there's other conditions or disease states that are available, you can look in there. You can also sign up for a registry or a matching service. For example, Research Goes Red, something through the American Heart Association that I've participated in where I sign myself up as a middle-aged woman. Um, I won't give you my age, but um, I get opportunities that come to me if your patients are interested in being very altruistic or want to help the future, um, there's sites like that. I've also seen sites like long haul COVID relief. Now, what I hope nurse practitioners would do when you're locating research opportunities for your patients, that you help vet some of these websites so somebody's not just going on social media and finding out what's available. Also, as I've mentioned, very renowned medical centers for rare conditions often offer clinical trials when standard care offers few treatment options. And again, um, that's the advantage of sometimes referring a patient to a specialty provider and explicitly ask them, do they have clinical trial participation? Because often with patients that I've seen in the cardiology area, and I know I'm giving you a lot of examples for that, but I'm trying to provide illustrations, that often they might get um, an extra ultrasound or an extra procedure that is very non-invasive that will actually help their condition by having these uh, free um, medications or testing that could be part of that. It helps all their care. There's also media outlets or websites that focus on a particular condition. And one thing that the nurse practitioner can do here is help vet those particular organizations. See if the procedure or the um, protocol has had IRB approval. Every single one should say it has IRB approval. If it's done through Canada or Europe, it might say ethics committee approval. And make sure your patient actually meets the eligibility requirements. For example, I've had patients bring news articles or things from an internet, and I say, oh no, you don't meet that requirement now. And it's a good thing, because usually those requirements are a lot, patients need to be a lot sicker. Or sometimes they may have a reason to be excluded from the study. Another good tip is, um, usually a website that ends with .org, .gov, or an NIH, National Institute of Health website, is already vetted, and you know those are legitimate websites. So, Paula, can you speak more to the action items that our nurse practitioner participants, what they can do 
to encourage clinical trial participation for their patients. So I've spoken to how they could find research opportunities, but maybe more about how they can encourage participation or how they can advocate for their patients who are approached from others about clinical trial participation. Absolutely, Leslie. Healthcare professionals are central to the patient's decision making. As with all aspects of healthcare, patients look to members of the healthcare team for trusted medical advice and guidance. So healthcare providers such as MPs play an enormous role in raising awareness about clinical trials. It is important that we discuss possible treatment options with our patients. Patients need to feel comfortable uh, and safe to bring that information to us. They need to be aware of and provided information about participation within a clinical trial. So these are opportunities to engage and to educate our patients. Providing resources to help patients make informed decisions about involvement and research promotes understanding of the benefits and risk of participation. Being involved in a trial may benefit our patients, and we need to share this. In many cases, being part of a clinical trial is what helps patients play an active role in their health care and learn more about treating and managing their conditions. It's important to encourage patients that they will work with clinicians and researchers who are experts in their disease or condition. There's actually evidence that patients taking part in clinical trials do better than others with the same disease or condition. So just as uh, Leslie stated, it is important that MPs be familiar with trials that are recruiting within their healthcare community and refer potentially eligible patients to an appropriate trial. Assisting academic-based research teams to facilitate patient access or enrollment in particular trials, particularly in rural areas. Network with peers and colleagues to determine clinical trials in areas outside of your clinical base. And then also, I like the fact that you mentioned about valuable resources such as clinicaltrials.gov, and this is a registry and a results database of all clinical studies that involve human subjects being conducted around the world. And then another resource is nih.gov under the clinical research trials section, which also provides great information on study terminology, participant tips, and other general information that we can also uh, engage our patient within this discussion. And then we can't forget about AANP's Monthly Research Digest is another great resource. I also want to highlight when discussing clinical trials with our patients, we have to take the time to use plain language delivered in a culturally appropriate manner, using language translators, inviting the caregivers and family to participate in the discussion. This is very important if we want to engage our patients in clinical trial participation as well as advocating for our patients. And if they bring a handout or other information about a trial, it's important that we vet it through the clinicaltrials.gov. And so IRB has been approved to study and to review these trials and, it, and making sure that it meets eligibility criteria. Leslie, do you have any other closing remarks? One thing that I think we can think towards the future. So earlier when you were talking about the informed consent process, you had talked about that it's a process. Now, most often we think about that accompanies a signature, a hard copy, a piece of paper. Something I wanted to mention in the future that we've been trying to do to decrease barriers to participation is, uh, and it also allows someone to think about participation instead of making a decision on the spot. 
we are now doing more electronic consent where we might give a hard copy. We're talking about lifestyle studies and how they can participate in counseling, lifestyle counseling, for example, we're doing in our clinic. You know, they've had a long day. They're usually a new patient and we meet them. And then I share with them a brochure. I give them a copy of the consent so they can review in detail when they're not tired. Um, but then we also do electronic consent, something through REDCap. So REDCap is a service that many um, research organizations use to collect data and surveys. But now there's also evidence to show you can do electronic consents through REDCap. And you can even create consents that involve video to show one procedure versus another. And it really helps with that health literacy components instead of just text in a consent. So I think the future is great of how we explain studies and, and, and I can rest easier knowing that some of these very complex consents can actually have more of a health literate way of explaining things. And maybe one other point, because you've done such a great job explaining things. I definitely want to say the evidence does, as you've said, research participants do better than those not in studies. Now, that should, shouldn't say that care outside of studies is, is not great, but the evidence definitely supports that patients do better. And if you think about it, they've got extra personnel, extra eyes on the scene, um, and oftentimes extra resources that we've talked about. And my last point is that oftentimes patients, and, and we talked a little bit about this, care options that typically may not be available for them. For example, I keep going with the cardiac examples, but cardiac rehab, we know only about 15% of um, women actually go to cardiac rehab for a variety of reasons and barriers. But like there's clinical trials that may have, and they came out during COVID, that had home-based cardiac rehab or virtual rehab. So at least the women that participated in those studies, and in this case, there were actually men in those studies too, um, they were at least two out of three by flip of the coin chances that they would receive this free cardiac rehab. So a lot of times, if you think about things, you have a role to help explain and improve care by offering it to patients. But ultimately, Paula, as you've indicated, it is their decision. So um, I think we've had a great podcast. I hope our participants agree and we'll send it back to Patty. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Paula and Leslie. It has been an absolute pleasure listening to you and gaining your perspective and insights on this extremely important topic. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your practice. Join your National Professional Association and add your voice to over 120,000 of your NP colleagues nationwide. I urge you to become an AANP member today. Membership gives you access to so many benefits, including tools and resources for your practice and the AANP CE Center, which offers a comprehensive library of CE activities for NPs of all specialties and experience levels. Exclusive discounts and many free activities are yours as an AANP member to help you complete state licensure requirements and earn the credits needed for recertification. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new episodes. And thank you for listening.